Are you ready for good talk? there, Peter Mansbridge here. I'm in Toronto today. Chantal Hebert is in Montreal and Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. Welcome to you all. And let's, the way I was thinking of this is over time, I've noticed uh, whenever there's a big event, a big national event, usually a big national political event, it could be an election, could be a leadership convention, um, it could be a budget, a speech from the throne, you name it. There's always a buildup. And there's a degree of excitement and interest in terms of what may happen. And then almost immediately after that's happened, whatever the event is, interest disappears like overnight. And I, you know, I've witnessed that by watching, uh, among other things, the, uh, you know, ratings on the television networks for newscasts. And the same thing happened uh, over the last week. A lot of interest over the final weekend because the race was so tight. Um and then once it was over, even though there's still some counting going on, once it was over, interest waned, uh, to say the least, and uh, ratings dropped and, and you're left with what you're left with. Well, where I don't think it has dropped is in terms of some reflection and in some cases self-reflection on the part of the, uh, the different parties and their leadership, because you could make the argument that you know, none of the leaders uh, got what they were hoping for uh, out of this election. And so it's only natural that they and perhaps some of their supporters uh, may be thinking about, well, you know, what do we think of this leadership? So that's what I want to discuss today. And that's a long-winded way of getting about it. But um, let's start with the big three national parties um, and we'll work from the bottom up on those three and, and, and take it one at a time. So let's start with the NDP who, you know, at, at the last time I saw the count, and as I've said, counting is still going on in some areas because of mail-in ballots, et cetera, uh, and very close races. They were um, up one seat from where they were the last time round and up almost two percentage points from they were, uh, where they were last time. But having said those two ups, they're still in fourth place. Um, And they may well have been hoping for a lot more than what they ended up with. So what does this do to the leadership of Jagmeet Singh? Is there any discussion out there? Are you hearing anything in the back rooms and the corridors of power inside the NDP about Jagmeet Singh? Uh, Chantel, why don't you start us? The NDP has uh, the, the the flip side uh, of its third place in the way that it is covered, in the sense that the, the leadership machinations, for instance, of the Conservatives uh, will always attract more attention from the media and from anyone than anything happening to the NDP. And so just because you're not seeing a lot of public uh, questioning of Jagmeet Singh, I am sure that there are new Democrats who are looking at this thinking, uh, is this good enough? Two campaigns in a row, 24 seats, no uh, significant gains in the GTA area, where which was one place where Jagmeet Singh's advent as the NDP leader created a lot of hope initially that uh, it would generate more interest in uh, the 905, uh, where he used to be elected and his brother is elected provincially. But the truth is that uh, when when all this thinking takes place behind closed doors, uh, NDP strategists and others will have to start thinking about uh, whether their current leader has enough depth to be more than an also ran in an election campaign, because this campaign was run almost strictly on congeniality rather than credibility. And Mr. or Miss Congeniality rarely uh, comes first. That that is kind of a consolation prize. It's not the prize, and I figure it because I know a lot of New Democrats. You do too. They're not they're not dumb people. They're very smart. That if they crafted the campaign that way, they crafted it to suit the kind of leader they have. And one thing you could say about Jagmeet Singh at his first campaign was that he lacked policy depth. 
And then the, and the excuse for that or the explanation was he was a rookie leader. The transition, and that is true, is never easy from pro- provincial to federal politics, even if you come from Ontario, the center of the universe in the minds of many in the political arena. But on the second campaign, the same lack of policy depth was uh, in evidence, and it was only hidden by the congeniality uh, tack of the NDP campaign. Bruce? Uh, I think that in the months running up to the election, Peter, that liberals were really worried about what they were seeing in terms of support levels for the NDP, which were running at about 21% nationally. And if they had been able to get 21%, the election outcome would have been quite different. Probably the Conservatives would have won the election, but the NDP definitely would have won more seats. Uh, I I think that um, whether the NDP does a kind of a sober analysis of its leader and what they did in this campaign has got more to do with the DNA of the party and its willingness or unwillingness chronically to do that kind of thing than it does whether it should be done. Uh, I suppose that if it's, if it's reasonable for the Conservatives to ask themselves these questions about leadership, it's even more reasonable for the NDP, arguably, to look at what they did and how it worked out and to ask some hard questions, Um, especially when it comes to um, urban progressive voters, where it looked like the NDP was going to eat the Liberal Party's lunch, and then in the end, uh, it was just a a fairly significant failure, I think, for the NDP uh, looked at from that standpoint. And one of the reasons I think for that is that Chantal used the word uh, congeniality as the kind of the uh, the driving message of the campaign. I think that's right. I think it was really about one man and, and it was believing maybe a little bit too much in the idea that he was the most popular leader and that would matter, even though polls told us consistently that if you gave people a choice between an O'Toole government and a Trudeau government, it was 60-40. People wanted a a liberal over a conservative government. And when I heard, when I thought about the the NDP message, at its best, it's an anti-conservative, anti-rich, pro-environment, pro-feminist, you know, just this side of radical maybe, but enough to make people pay attention to it. And I didn't hear very much of that from this party this time. I heard a lot about Trudeau. I heard very little about conservatism from them. And I think that's uh, demotivating in terms of their vote. And I think that uh, anti-conservative rhetoric uh, from the liberals really was the only anti-conservative channel uh, in in town. And uh, so it rallied more votes than the NDP did. And I think that's a failure for the NDP. You know, I um, I remember interviewing uh, Jagmeet Singh before uh, the campaign started. And I asked him, where's your base? Like, what's your power base as you go into this election? You know, is it the West? Is it labor? Is it the, you know, central uh, Canada? Uh, And he said, no, 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 it's none of those anymore. It is youth. It's the youth vote across the board, across the country. Now, I haven't seen the full breakdown yet of uh, of the youth vote. Um, But what I have seen would indicate that the liberals once again outgunned them on the on the youth vote. So one would assume that was, you know, I don't know whether you classify that as a failure. They did well in the youth vote, but I don't think they, you know, it wasn't their power base. Bruce, well, I think that's right. Can I just add one, yeah. one other thing? I'd love to hear what Chantal thinks about this too, because we did talk about it before, which is the, there was a moment uh, in Rosie Barton's interview where Jagmeet Singh was asked about TMX. And I feel like if your whole campaign is the other guy's just a talker and you can't trust him, um, for Jagmeet Singh not to have an answer uh, to the question of what are you going to do with TMX, for Jagmeet Singh to also have the weakest rated uh, by some people anyway, a climate plan, major policy failures, at least in terms of preparedness. And, and I think that has to be on the on the kind of the list of what went wrong too, especially with young people for those things. Right. Chantal? The NDP used to be known for heavy policy lifting and some kind of intellectual laziness is set in uh, at the top of the party. And in particular, 
on the environment and climate change, that does not start necessarily with Jokmitsing. Uh, it starts with the rise under Elizabeth May of the Green Party and the notion of many new Democrat strategists that they couldn't win on climate change. It couldn't be a big card in their, uh, in their hand anymore because the Green Party was uh, the climate change option if that guided your vote. The problem is that since those days, the, the, the dynamics have changed. A lot of voters have this box that they will tick when they look at a government or a government in waiting that is called climate change. It's no longer, I'm worried about climate change, so I'm going to go to the fringe or the margins of the political landscape. It's front and center. I find it mildly um, demeaning to young voters who are particularly preoccupied with climate change, that you could think that you were going to win their votes by um, doing headstands or uh, roller boarding on the tarmac of an airport or dancing on TikTok rather than being the, 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 the most serious person in the lineup on climate change. Uh, and I, I say that, frankly, as uh, uh, the a parent of, of people who are no longer 20, but who are still young voters who would think this is just not a serious offer. And I would be insulted to be told that because they're younger voters, they should be entertained uh, rather than led to where they want to go. You know, nothing focuses the mind on leadership uh, more than a challenge. Is, is there any challenge out there? Is there any talk of someone else or something else? There's always talk of A.V. Lewis, who, as you know, uh, did not win uh, a seat in BC and was running in a seat where it would have taken a major uh, change in the normal local dynamics for him to win. My test is always the same. I figure over all these years, if A.V. Lewis is interested, surely he's been taking French lessons. And we don't know whether he has or not. <laughs> there is no evidence of that. But he is the dream candidate of many. And I'm convinced that his presence on the ballot helped uh, in BC in the sense that with his ties to the anti-globalization movement and his name, it made it easier for some green voters to cross over to the NDP in that province. Peter, I, I don't know whether there is or there isn't, uh, but I would be I wouldn't be shocked if if there was some restiveness uh, on the part of Ontario New Democrats in particular. I think that um, you know there are at least a couple of ridings in the GTA, which I'm pretty sure the Liberals had thought they were going to lose, almost sure to lose to the NDP. Um, and I think that there there hadn't been as much satisfaction with the outcome of the of the leadership change when Jagmeet Singh took uh, took the reins of power and um, and so I I feel like there had been some difficult feelings uh, maybe with people who supported another candidate like Charlie Angus that sort of thing and so it wouldn't surprise me if those feelings are still there. And then we heard um, about these stories about the central campaign uh, taking money essentially that normally would go to get out the vote efforts by the grassroots workers of the party in ridings where they had a chance to win. And the one thing that I think the other parties all kind of envied and admired about the NDP is they had a good, they could focus their resources, their people, their small army would go to where they had a chance to win and get out the vote where they could get it. And they didn't seem to do that this time. And there is some suggestion, I don't know how much merit there is to it, but uh, that the flow of funds went more toward the advertising, national advertising, TikTok advertising, that kind of thing. And I agree with Chantel. I think that some of that might have felt good by the campaign at the time, but it doesn't look that good uh, in the cold light of day after the election outcome, especially relative to the get out the vote effort in winnable ridings and whether or not there was a misallocation of resources. All of that being said, it probably didn't help the NDP that there were no uh, polls on campuses this year. Uh, it, it's, you know, it, it's one thing to say your base is the youth vote, but you do have to find them. And the first place to find them uh, at this time of the year is usually on a university campus 
If you look at this province, for instance, and Quebec Solidaire, which is as close to the NDP provincially as you could have in Quebec, and you look at where they won their seats in the last election, a fall election, every single seat is in a city that has a major university campus. True, true. But here's another little bit of tiny bit of math here, which is the Green Party, the latest count I'm seeing is it lost almost 800,000 votes over its 2019 result. The NDP picked up 114,000. Every poll I've ever seen says half of the Green Party vote that leaves goes to the NDP. That didn't happen. Those people are not impossible to find uh, on campus or otherwise. And I think that that has to look like a big math failure uh, for the party. Yeah, it does look like a big math failure. Um, and, you know, there will be studies done into what happened to that big chunk of Green Party votes. That, um, they didn't go to the NDP. <laughs> some went to the Liberals. Some went to the Conservatives. So there was Some of, went to Maxime Bernier. And some went to Max Bernier, exactly. Um, okay, uh, we spent a lot of time there on the NDP, uh, partly because when we get to the Conservatives, well, it's interesting. Well, it is interesting. You know, yeah. and it's probably the least talked about part of the post-election analysis. So, And the most talked about is is where we are now with the Conservatives. Because as Chantel mentioned earlier, uh, no party has a history of sticking a knife in a leader better than the Conservatives. The Liberals don't have a bad history on that, but it doesn't match what the Conservatives Liberals have got been. game. They do have game. <laughs> they have yeah. game on that on that front. But um, the Conservatives have a lot of, a lot of game. And it was interesting to see because right out of the gate on election night, there were, you know, well-known conservatives suggesting that there had been big errors made by uh, Aaron O'Toole and he may have to pay the price. They slowly, you know, what was it yesterday? I think Mike Harris came out and and said, this is not the time uh, to do in Aaron O'Toole. He was actually a smart guy and a good campaigner, et cetera, et cetera. It's time to rebuild the party and decide on the image of the party and what you want the party to stand for uh, more than be fiddling around in the leadership game. Um, Having said all that, the numbers show the Conservatives actually lost votes. They still had more votes than anybody else, but they lost some votes. And at best, they have the same number of seats as they had uh, going in. So uh, where are we on Aaron O'Toole? What do, what, what, do we, what do we think is happening there that we haven't already said <laughs> in, the, in the last week or so? Bruce? Well, uh, since you threw in that caveat of haven't already said, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> no, oh, I my God. How oh, fortunate. <laughs> Let's move on to the next party. Then, No, look, uh, I think the the conservative party wasn't united before the election campaign and the election result will reveal how disunited it is or isn't. Uh, I think that it wasn't united because uh, I read a quote by Mark Strahl, the MP from B.C., which I thought, you know, put the dilemma succinctly that there's in his view, there's no point in a conservative party that's not conservative there's equally no point in a conservative party that can't win enough votes to form a government. Um, That's been maybe the eternal dilemma uh, for the conservative party, but it, um, it is no less evident today, maybe more evident, uh, especially when they look at their results in the GTA and other urban areas of the country. Um, They had a chance to do better. They could have done better. Why didn't they do better? Those are good questions to ask themselves. And part and parcel of that is, you know, the evidence. And we, you know, we have to be careful about assuming that statements by unnamed people about what Aaron O'Toole chose to do or didn't do are completely accurate. That happens when people are trying to remove a leader um, and Uh, news stories welcome those kind of comments, even though they're sort of unverifiable by their very nature. Having said that, the idea that the platform didn't chart a steady and convincing course uh, either for conservatism or for mainstream centrist voters. It wasn't credible enough on guns uh, to survive a stress test on that. It wasn't powerful enough on climate change to... um, knit uh, both the interests of urban climate concerned voters and 
traditional conservative voters who didn't like the idea of any kind of price on carbon because it felt like it was liberal light. I, so I don't think there was a deafness to the platform, but I also, and I did say this before and I'll touch on it again. I think that if you're a leader in the conservative party today and you don't do a lot of the kind of, Hey, let's rally everybody together visibly, uh, make sure that if something goes wrong, everybody feels like they're obliged to stand by me again, at least for a little while. And I don't think Aaron O'Toole did that very much with his uh, former leadership rivals, with his front bench, with other influential people in the party. And so uh, the, the saying I learned first in my political life, it, I don't know who said it, and it wasn't only from politics, what goes around comes around is a real truth in politics. And and if you, um, if you treat people uh, with a bit of distance or maybe even disdain, uh, when you feel like you have the opportunity to do that, don't be surprised if uh, if things go wrong and there's another kind of uh, agenda that starts to be discussed if you feel uh, uh, some backlash because of that. Chantal. There's another saying that uh, is one familiar to Brian Mulroney. It, it is that you dance with the one who brings you, uh, which in the case of Aaron O'Toole, he could not do because he literally spent the campaign uh, as a prime ministerial aspirant campaigning against Aaron O'Toole leadership aspirant a year before. Uh, he seems to have uh, chosen which of the two he wants to be on election night. I thought his election night speech was uh, actually the most uh, authentic speech that he uh, delivered over the past two years. Uh, and there is plenty in the election results that shows that uh, his contention that the party needs to be repositioned closer to the center is the right one. Those results in the large urban markets of the country speak volumes about uh, that need. Uh, and also uh, the fact and one of the first things that happened this week was that the Quebec caucus, possibly to a man and a woman, including the Senate, rallied behind Aaron O'Toole. And one of the reasons for that is not just that uh, Premier François Legault found in Aaron O'Toole a rare uh, conservative leader since Brian Mulroney that a Quebec Premier would want to back, but it is also that the campaign has exhibited a fundamental weakness in the Bloc Québécois uh, base of support. That, that fundamental weakness was obliterated in large part by the English language debate controversy, but it remains there. And, and that's a major opening for a leader who does not um, inspire uh, fear or, or disdain in Quebec. And Aaron O'Toole may not have won much in Quebec, but he certainly does not inspire that. The fact that all those MPs still want to fight another battle uh, under his leadership uh, kind of speaks volume about that. So it's going to be interesting to watch going forward, but I do think that uh, the conservative base, and we always talk about those factions, uh, the, the social conservatives, uh, the, the, the libertarians, etc., uh, that in the, car in the case of the social conservatives played a major role in O'Toole's ascent to the leadership, as if they were all single-issue people, which is not the case. Yes, they have reason on that basis to be unhappy with Aaron O'Toole, but this is the party that turned its back on Stockwell Day, one of their own in the case of the social conservatives, to pick Stephen Harper, who was campaigning for the leadership, telling them he would not pursue abortion restriction policies if he came to lead the party, because they wanted to win and they could see that or believe that their chances of winning were better under one than the other. So it's simplistic to say, well, you know, 30% of the people who vote or the majority in caucus uh, may be social conservatives. So Aaron O'Toole is toast. I don't believe that. I believe that there will be more thoughtful uh, thinking uh, beyond the knee jerk. Uh, we're unhappy with the result. And I think it was wise of him to use that election night speech to signal that he was not going to leave without a fight. Um. If there is a fight, uh, it will take somebody to fight against or a collection of people to fight against. Uh, the Conservatives always seem to have people standing in the wings, uh, if not capable, certainly are willing to be in the wings and want to run. Uh, have we seen any hints from that group uh, this week 
that they want to fight? They're all at the uh, mirror shop buying those mirrors that are special in politics that make you look bigger than you actually are. Uh, (laughs) And yes, there have been rumblings from a variety of quarters, but uh, no one seems to want to come out of the shadows. And I think they're still rightly feeling uh, the ground to see if they have a shot at it. They might uh, look at what the NDP did to Thomas Mulcair. Can we seriously argue that the NDP would not have done better if they'd kept Mulcair against a weaker Trudeau in 2019. He would have been the stronger of the three main leaders, Andrew Scheer, Justin Trudeau, and Thomas Mulcair. And he left with 44 seats. That's 20 more than Jagmeet Singh this year. So there is a bit of a lesson there. If you're a party that wants to be a party base that wants to be comfortable with your leader, then go the NDP route. If you're a party that aspires to make changes, then work on your policy between now and the next election so that you craft an offer to Canadians that is more credible and less all over the place than the offer that Aaron O'Toole put forward. And when you say go the NDP route, you're talking about a, a leadership review soon. Well, you can see that the NDP is totally uh, comfortable by and large the base with the directions uh, that the uh, uh, Jack Singh has put forward versus those of Thomas Mulcair. The only problem is the roadmap he is giving them, the one they like, leads them straight to opposition benches. So, yes, you could replace Mr. O'Toole with someone who looks more like the base. And then you could maybe replace those chairs on the official opposition side with uh, more comfortable seats because you'll be using them for a long, long time. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, that you know, parties aren't usually best masters when it comes to making these calculations, because if they were and they were conservative, they would assume they won't have Justin Trudeau to run against the next time. And so what will they run um, for or what will they run against becomes uh, a pretty important way of starting the process of thinking about what they should do. But I was going to say, Peter, that I, one of my favorite political songs is the is the sound of people who really want something to happen but want to use words that make it ambivalent or sound ambivalent or oblique about what they want to have it i was reading a a story this morning i think it was a canadian press story and it quoted a couple of people uh leslin lewis and michelle uh, rempel garner and the 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 quotes sounded to me very, very, very tepid in their support of Mr. O'Toole. But they were presented in this context of the story as being supportive of him because the words used, the phrase was like, well, I take him at his word when he says that we're going to have a thorough review. And so if you just say, I take him, if you just focus on, I take him at his word, you can say, well, that's an expression of support for Mr. O'Toole. But if you're Mr. O'Toole, you don't know that that's really a measure of support. It's basically somebody saying, well, we'll have to talk about this later. And Leslin Lewis, I think, was the other one who said, well, you know, what was done with Mr. Shear was too hasty. Or, I'm paraphrasing a little bit and we shouldn't do that, which isn't the same as saying we shouldn't replace Aaron O'Toole. It's it's entirely plausible that what a Leslin Lewis was saying was if you're a conservative who voted for Aaron O'Toole, but considered me as your second choice last time, I want your support if there's another race and I'm going to run. So sometimes people use language like that to send out signals that they can then uh, continue to work as, as things develop. And then the final version of that is the, that caucus member who has self-chosen or been delegated by others to be a little bit the stalking horse for the hard message. Uh, in this case, I think it was Chris uh, Wartonkin from um, uh, Saskatchewan or Alberta. I, I should know that. But anyway, his language was really, really rough. And sometimes you can read a story like that. And if you're, if you're maybe just a casual observer of politics, you go, well, that's just one person. But, you know, more often than not, That's not the case. That's the one person who has been sent out to throw the heavy artillery out. And there's usually a few more, maybe more than a few more. Um, And uh, the last thing I wanted to say is, I think that this vaccination question kind of 
landed squarely in the middle of this party unity question in a way that um, really perplexed the campaign. I think you can't be so pro-vaccine in January, February, that you're beating the Liberal Party up every day. And then come election time in September, you're the take the vaccine, don't take the vaccine, we'll take it or we won't take it, but we won't tell you and not have people wonder uh, why there seems to be that kind of inconsistent level of uh, a belief uh, in using science to solve this pandemic. Anyway, I'll stop there. Well, just I saw uh, Chantal picking yeah, up her got, pen like she because, wanted to kind of riff off man, some of those. Also, because I have to write a column and I'm going to forget anything I say. Uh, but uh, Bruce said something about fighting the next campaign against someone other than Justin Tudor and who you're going to be fighting at that point uh, maybe is where you need to get your head around. But the other uh, notion about the next campaign is what you are going to be fighting on. And these some of the issues that uh, really... Uh, divide the conservative movement will be largely non-issues come the next election. And let me name just two. By in two years or three years or maybe four, we're not going to be having another debate over carbon pricing and the carbon tax. It will have been a fact of life for five, six years. It's going to be in the system. That is not where the debate is going to be. Uh, we will not be debating uh, Trans Mountain and pipelines because TMX will have been done and no other pipeline will have gotten off the ground. Uh, and, and that is going to be a fact of life. Childcare. We are not going to have the debate over the liberal childcare initiative because it will be a done deal. What, is, what happened this week? One of the first things that happened this week was Premier Ford resurfacing in Ontario to have a news conference and say, by the way, I would like to sign one of those childcare agreements. Well, in two or three years, the money will have been spent and no conservative leader, whoever he may be, is going to go around saying, I'm going to dismantle all that. It's going to be too late. So there is an opportunity to craft a forward-looking platform that walks past these internal dissensions on those issues because they will no longer be in the picture. That would also be true, by the way, of medical medical help in dying. And vaccines. The regime in place, we're not going to be revisiting in three years. Not right. happening. Right. Uh, so, and the other thing that may help Mr. O'Toole, and that's my final point, is a lot of conservatives are going to say, we've lost power uh, federally. We have two big battles coming over the next two years. The first is in June, and it's keeping Ontario. And if we want to keep Ontario, we cannot afford to have every party activist lined up in a war to the finish to decide the fate of Aaron O'Toole. And the second is Alberta, where Jason Kenney may not be safe, but government is in play in Alberta. And it is totally possible. And that also goes for the NDP because of what's happening in Alberta, that the NDP can come back to power with Rachel Notley. So for many conservative activists, keeping those two big provinces in the conservative fold should be more important than having a war over Aaron O'Toole. I love the way you describe what things could be like, you know, two and a half, three years down the road and what won't be at play. You can add, I think you can add, safely add vaccines to that. (laughs) God, if we are not through all this by then, um, you know, we're in a lot more trouble than we think. Uh, but you know what will still be there, which they didn't play on this time around, was, uh, you know, the state of the economy, the national debt, the deficit, all of that will still be around, inflation, you name it, which are more traditional conservative issues where they normally fight. That's usually the battleground. Without um, dividing over the issue internally. Exactly. Yeah, I think that the one of the great vulnerabilities for Aaron O'Toole in this next period is probably that his fiscal uh, approach didn't didn't sync up with the view of the vast majority of his party. And so whether or not they would have actually run on something different or can just use it as an excuse to to beat on him a little bit now, I think it is going to be. Uh, along with carbon pricing, one of the biggest themes among those who say this wasn't a conservative platform, uh, that the you know that the 
cost of the platform was going to be the same as the liberals and left people wondering, well, is that conservative enough? And, and if we're spending all of that money, what are we getting for it? Um, so I, I think that's a big vulnerability in terms of bringing the party together. Uh, and if I'm Mr. O'Toole and I'm thinking about if I'm going to defend successfully, I'm going to need to explain that and describe what my platform will be in the next election campaign, at least to some degree, to start to reassure people who might be inclined to support him uh, that they'll know which Aaron O'Toole uh, they're going to get. Well, if there's one thing he's proven in a couple of years is that he can change positions, and uh, one assumes he's going to have to do some more of that in the next uh, in the next little while, if that is part of and parcel of of holding on to his job. Okay, good discussion. Uh, that does leave us with um, with Justin Trudeau, and we're going to do that after this quick pause. A can of pet food, where every ingredient matters. Some companies like to brag about their first ingredient, but the Acana Pet Food team is proud of their entire bag. That's because every recipe has been thoughtfully sourced and carefully crafted with the highest quality ingredients, starting with quality animal ingredients, balanced with whole fruits and vegetables. Acana Pet Foods are rich in the protein and nutrients your dog or cat needs to feel and look their best. Available in grain-free, healthy grains and singles for sensitive dogs. Acana, go beyond the first ingredient. You're listening to The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. All right, back with uh, Good Talk. Chantelle Bear is in Montreal. Bruce Anderson is in Ottawa. I'm in, I'm, I'm Peter Mansbridge. I'm in uh, Toronto today. I wasn't sure where I was. Um, but anyway, that's where we all are. You're listening to Good Talk on Sirius XM Channel 167, Canada Talks, or you're listening on wherever you get your podcasts. And we appreciate your support over these, especially over this last five weeks of the campaign, the uh, the numbers for uh, Good Talk and all the other uh, programming which falls under the bridge um, has been just terrific. And we it's good to hear from so many of you. Okay, we've dealt with Jagmeet Singh and we've dealt with Aaron O'Toole. Their situations are resolved. They just have to listen to what we said, and they know exactly what they need to do. So let's um, let's talk about Justin Trudeau for a moment, because he didn't win a majority, but he did hold on to what he had and actually added a couple of seats. Um, he did not finish on top of the vote-getting uh, uh, poll, but uh, nevertheless, as we said, he's still prime minister. Now, all three of us have said at one point or another – before the campaign or before the voting day that we did not think he would run a next time that we've just seen Justin Trudeau in his last election campaign. Now that'll be a decision he needs to make. What do we think? Um, have, have, well, let's start from this. Have, has your, have your views changed at all on that? You know, since uh, we've been going through all the election results from the other night. Um, nope. Okay, you go ahead. Uh, but that is not because uh, I think there will be a movement to house Justin Trudeau. It is because I I think that uh, this is a term where he could set his legacy. All these issues we just talked about that won't be in the picture of the next election, they will be his legacy in three years. There is not a case of a fourth consecutive victory under the same leader to be found anywhere in recent times. Yes, Pierre Trudeau had a fourth mandate, but he had to lose to win. Uh, so the fourth consecutive one uh, was Paul Martin's to Jean Chrétien. And we know what happened after that. But uh, And possibly if Jean Chrétien had run and led the party, he might have won, but that didn't happen. So prime ministers have two choices. They can retire and let Others deal with the mess, and it's usually a mess once they do that. Thank uh, Kim Campbell, Brian Mulroney, Trudeau and John Turner, Stephen Harper, and or they can choose to have voters fire them. Uh, and I think if Justin Trudeau thinks long and hard about uh, his options, he probably would relish having his hands freer of electoral calculations so that he can get down to those legacy items uh, and possibly enjoy it. I, I'm going to say something that has nothing to do with political analysis. Those kids on election night, they've grown up a lot. Yeah, they sure there are. is a point where you say, how much of my kids 
growing up do I still want to catch up to uh, before they're gone? And and when you look at how big they and tall they are, you think, hmm, as a parent, I don't know. That being said, there is a widespread assumption within liberal ranks that what I'm saying is true. If that assumption turns out over the next year and a half to look that it, like it's wrong, I'm not sure whether there might not be pressures on Justin Trudeau to think of taking a walk in the snow. Parties work like that. And as long as you think that the, the person you want to see leave will do the right thing, you're not going to be proactive. But if you start thinking that's not happening, you might feel otherwise. A few points also. Uh, the prime minister as a leader is hardly a spent force as, as part, uh, to lead this party. I can't think of a successor that could do better than he could or he has in Quebec. Now, so no one's going to say he can't win in Quebec anymore. No one's going to say he can't, he can't win in Ontario. He's won seats that uh, Premier Ford will want for the Conservatives a few months down the line. And no one will really be saying and he's, he can't win seats in the West because he actually managed to win seats in Alberta. So for a prime minister running for the third time, his national representation looks pretty good and better than Stephen Harper's. Uh, at the same time, who could hardly get the time of day in Quebec, for instance. The liberals are well positioned in every large urban market, including Montreal. You know, you look at this and you think, who would replace uh, Justin Trudeau and do as well across the board? And for all of the, the, the wards of the prime minister and the wear and tear, the answer is not readily available. You know, before Bruce uh, jumps in here, uh, two points. You're right about national representation. I mean, the only province that didn't elect a liberal, or at least one, was Saskatchewan. Um, and, you know, that, that does say something about any party on election night, if they can have representation uh, to some degree in, in every province or almost every province. You know, that, give, that gives them some cred on the national front. Um, the other point was your your point about the kids. I, I noticed that too. Uh, you know, man, they've grown up fast. And I found it interesting that he was with them quite a bit in the the the, the end part of the campaign. The last few days in anything that was in the neighborhood of Ottawa or Montreal, they were there uh, with him. And I thought... That you know, I'm not sure if that's more than it had been in the past, but because they've so grown up, because they look almost adult, um, it it did leave you going, well, you know, maybe exactly what you said. Maybe he's thinking at some point here, I've got to spend more time um, with these kids who've grown up uh, so quickly because they'll be gone soon. (laughs) As as parents, we know that. Yeah, exactly, Bruce. Yeah, well, I think 100% it's uh, the case that if Justin Trudeau wants to run as leader of the party in the next election, his party will be behind him. Um, they may not be as enthusiastic as uh, they have been in the past, but they will not uh, challenge him. There's a lot of affection between him and his uh, his party, which isn't to say that the natural course of things means that people in the party who have ambition, who want to get on to what's next, um, they want their turn to write that page. And that's a normal and I think quite healthy thing. In it. And I think he probably thinks that it's quite healthy as well. So I wouldn't be surprised to see him appoint a cabinet that gives um, significant opportunity to people who might uh, want to run to replace him. I think he's not that leader who will go, how do I keep the, Uh, pretenders to my job at bay or diminished or hidden from public view. I think he's going to do exactly the opposite of that. And I think so we'll see in his cabinet appointments an indication of whether or not I'm right about that. But I, you know, he feels to me like a guy who is going to enjoy the custodial responsibility of turning over power in his party to another generation of people rather than uh, gird himself up for a fight against that inevitable kind of process that takes root within parties. And I think that's to his credit that he thinks that way. And one of the reasons you mentioned kids and and that sort of thing, and I think that probably is an important uh, 
aspect of it. But the other is it, it's a it's a garbage job now. Uh, I mean, I think it's easy for people sometimes to look at it and say, well, you know, you got all the accoutrement of power and, uh, <laughs> but it's a, not a pleasant job. You take an awful lot of deeply personal criticism, much more, I think, than has ever been the case because of the role of social media and, and some of the other factors that we've talked about. But, but also, if it was already getting to be a very unpleasant job and you add a pandemic uh, that sucks all of the available joy, you know, the human interaction, the chemistry aspect of politics, if all of that goes away and all you have are, I think I'm going to have to spend $250 billion. I think I'm going to have to try to find a way to get vaccines from somewhere around the world. I have to try to figure out how to recover the economy. Um, and not make epic mistakes uh, without a playbook really to follow. Uh, he's a, you know, he's a chemistry kind of leader. Um, whereas you look at a Harper and say, well, I mean, he, he probably didn't really love the chemistry part of the job very much. He liked the, the kind of the more cerebral um, use of power, the structural uh, use of power. Uh, I think Trudeau likes ideas, but I think he loves the chemistry uh, of politics and the chemistry of politics has completely gone. Uh, what's the technical term to rat shit in the last couple of years? Pardon my, uh, pardon my language. Um, we're going to take a quick last break here and come back just a, a bit on the cabinet making, but I, I just want to say, I, I, I on your, the, what you raised, I found particularly interesting is it was a reminder of the last liberal leader who did two minorities in a row. And that was Lester Pearson. 63, 65. What did he do? He brought in new blood and he gave them opportunity, gave them cabinet positions and the ability to, you know, basically run for the job because he knew it wasn't going to yep. be staying forever. And one of them, of course, was Justin Trudeau's father. Um, so that's interesting. I, I like the way you put that. Okay. Quick last break. And then uh, we'll come back on the, uh, the question of cabinet making. This is The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge. Right back for final thoughts with uh, Chantel in Montreal. Bruce is in uh, Ottawa. Um, cabinet making, uh, you know, there was all the fuss in 2015 about a cabinet that was uh, half female, half male, because it was 2015. Uh, it's 2021. What, um, aside from what we just mentioned on what the potential for the cabinet could be, what are you looking for? Is there... Uh, you know, this is the big portfolio to come, as we talked about a moment ago, uh, is going to continue to be finance. Do we see change there? Foreign affairs, do we see change there? Some of the big uh, portfolios. I've only got a couple of minutes, so um, be quick. Um, Chantel. Um, so think of Justin Trudeau as a man who is at this point wearing a double straitjacket. Uh, his first straight jacket is his imposed straight jacket of gender parity. He has lost four uh, female uh, cabinet ministers, three to defeats and one to retirement, Catherine McKenna. So he's got to uh, find that uh, balance by appointing uh, new women to cabinet. But he also has won seats in Alberta, and it's unimaginable that uh, there would not be seats at the table for Alberta now that he's got MPs, and they happen to be men. So, so they, they, that will make all the calculations even more complicated. And I don't believe he can walk away from gender parity. He's made it too much of a branding issue, so he can't back off. Uh, finance, you mentioned, it would be the biggest news of this new cabinet if Chrystia Freeland, after only one budget, is the first female finance minister uh, were suddenly not the finance minister. Uh, it would be amazing in the wrong sense of the word. Uh, many women voters would look at that and see that as a way for Justin Trudeau to try to stop Christian Freeland from being a strong contender for his role. I don't believe that's in the cards. I would not be totally surprised if Mark Garneau, the current foreign affairs minister, 
were reappointed, but only for a brief time and went on to a diplomatic posting sooner rather than later, especially since he is in a safe seat uh, in Montreal and it would be easier to run a by-election in that riding and keep it liberal. So uh, I keep an eye on whether Mark Garneau is back at foreign affairs and if he is, whether uh, we are not talking about uh, his replacement in six, seven, eight months. A couple of things, uh, Peter, that stand out to me. There are two Liberals elected in Alberta. I'd be, um, I wouldn't be surprised to see both of them uh, in the cabinet, um, one from Edmonton and one from Calgary. I think the, uh, that would be an interesting dynamic. I think the, uh, I agree with Chantal. It'd be hard for the PM to move away from gender parity, so he's going to have some knitting to do. Uh, the other thing I would probably look for him to do is sort of do the, the lineup of who's who's been punching above their weight or playing particularly well or, or kind of uh, improving their their game and and what kind of role do you want to give them? And, and my list would be Anita Anand, who, um, you know, very successful, I think, in, uh, in the vaccination procurement side. But other than vaccination procurement, it's not a high profile uh, role and she's in a writing that could be vulnerable. So it would be a good idea probably to give her something that gives her more um, protracted visibility. Uh, Marco Mendocino, I think, has been a kind of a rock for them in, in Toronto. Mark Miller has done a fantastic job, um, in my opinion, with the a very difficult Indigenous services uh, role. I think Jonathan Wilkinson has been a great steward of the environment file. Uh, and I wouldn't I would be surprised if they moved him uh, because it's a complex file. He handles it well. And um, and he you know, there's continued policy work to do. And then the last person for me that's interesting is Melanie Jolie, who I think has um, has convinced uh, whatever number of skeptics there might have been about her political acumen and her ability to kind of uh, uh, become a more effective spokesperson for the government, that she's uh, she has been a more effective spokesperson for the government. Um, people think that she has ambition. I don't know whether that's true, but... Um, uh, <laughs> this is someone who ran... Cold for mayor of Montreal. Possibly let's, she does. Let's answer ambition. that question. They, they all, they all, have, they all have a degree of ambition. I'm going to have to cut you off <laughs> yeah. there because you, there's hardly anybody left in that caucus that you have. Arjit Sajan, yes, <laughs> defense minister. Big question mark. Yeah, question mark there. Um, okay, listen, this was a fast. We never got, to, <laughs> we never got to the other leaders, uh, but we we did circle on the big three, um, and uh, I think that was. An interesting way to go. Listen, have a try to have a relaxing weekend. We could all use one of those. Uh, we'll be back on Monday, by the way, with a special edition, Isaac Bogotch, Dr. Isaac Bogotch. We're going to get back into the pandemic in the sense of trying to understand exactly where we are. So big questions for him on Monday's The Bridge. Chantel in Montreal, Bruce in Ottawa, thanks both very much. We'll talk to you again next week.